It's a privilege to be in the pulpit this morning and to follow on from Arno, from everyday people who unpacked the first 26 verses of Mark chapter 8 so well for us last week. And I'm going to be looking at the next three verses. I'm loving going through this series of Mark and I'm particularly enjoying the style of preaching through a book of the Bible um, and seeing how one sermon dovetails beautifully into the next. So I'm going to do a, lo- a little recap of last week's sermon because much that was covered last week is very re- relevant to what happens in our text today. Jesus was ministering in a Gentile area and he does the miracle for the second time of feeding thousands of people from next to nothing. And quite soon afterwards he encounters the Pharisees who ask him for a sign, which is ironic because he... Um, do I need to use that mic? No, no? All right. Which is ironic because um, he's just done a sign, and he's done a really good one, and he's done thousands of signs. Oh, thousands is probably an exaggeration. I do tend to do that. He's done many signs. And uh, now they ask for another one, and he is just so tired of the self-sufficiency within these Pharisees that he just sighs and walks away. And he goes to his disciples and he warns them and he says, be careful of the self-sufficiency of the Pharisees. He uses a metaphor. He says, be careful of the yeast of the Pharisees. And um, the disciples get confused because he's talking about bread and they only brought one loaf of bread with them in the boat. And they're worried that they're in trouble, which is funny because with less than that he fed thousands. But now all of a sudden we've got a problem because we've got a loaf of bread and 12 people and what are we going to do, Jesus? And it's not funny because it shows again how they still don't see him for who he is. They're still dependent on what we have and what we can do and worried. And Jesus um, then heals a blind man. It's a very interesting miracle because unlike all of the other miracles, and I want you to go back and check, he, it's unusual for him to work in stages in a miracle. When he healed the paralytic, he said, so that they will know that I am preaching the truth, stand. And he doesn't take a long time to stand. He gets up. And often when Jesus does a miracle, it's instant. But here, in this particular story, he first uses some earth and some spit, and the guy can't see clearly. The guy says, I see people, they look like trees. And I want to say to you, if you see people today and they look like trees, go to the optometrist, get it sorted out. That's not a healing. That's, a, that's still a problem. And then Jesus touches him a second time and he sees clearly. And I've always wondered why he touched him twice. I know he can heal him in one go. I've always wondered why he healed him in two. And then when we look at the text today, I'm hoping it will become as clear to you as it's become to me that this was actually placed in this gospel by Mark on purpose in this order because he's about to do something even better than helping a person see physically. And let's turn to the text now. In Mark chapter 8, verse 27, it says, uh, you can join me on the screen uh, if you've got your Bible in front of you, even better. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, 
John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And my first point this morning speaks about this most important question any of us will ever face in our lifetime. And that question is, who do you say Jesus is? Everything that has happened so far in Mark has been preparing the disciples to answer this question. All of the miracles have affirmed the power, authority, and deity of Jesus, yet they have not been able to see him clearly for who he is yet. And we arrive now at this watershed moment. moment. Mark's first eight chapters about seeing clearly who Jesus is. Finally, the disciples see in this moment. And you will see once Joey starts preaching the next eight chapters, we go in a completely different direction. This gospel becomes about something else after this watershed moment. And we all face this watershed moment in our lives. I remember the first time I asked the question, who is Jesus? I was four years old and I was watching TV in a flat in Hillbrow where we lived and it must have been Easter time. We never went to church. Um, and there was this man on the screen and he was carrying a cross and people were being mean to him. So I remember asking my atheist mom, who is he? And I don't think I got a very good answer. Much like the people of Jesus' day giving the disciples really bad answers about who Jesus is. But whatever answer I got does not really matter because ultimately it doesn't matter who other people think Jesus is. It matters what we think. But at four years old, I couldn't think very far. I just remember feeling disturbed and there was an underlying sense that I was watching something very, very important more important than I could yet grasp. But clearly something was starting to happen because I remember vividly the first time I saw that man walking his cross up that hill. I remember where I was and I remember how I felt. I did not yet realize that what I was watching was the very thing that was going to change my life forever on a certain day. But there's another question in the text this morning, and it's a dangerous question. And that question is, who do people say that I am? And as we see in the text, people don't have a clue who Jesus is. Some of them thought he was John the Baptist, who had been dead for a couple of months. Others, and that's just marginally better than others who thought he was Elijah, who hadn't been seen in hundreds of years. And still others... were vague. They didn't know. They just said he's some sort of a prophet. And today, if you ask the world, who is Jesus, you're going to get all sorts of varied and strange answers. Some people say he never existed. He's a myth. Some people say he did exist, but he was just a man, a good man, but just a man. And others say he was God in the flesh. Whatever the opinions of others may be, Jesus gets to the point by making the question personal. Who do you say I am? Friends, faith must be personal. Sitting in the room today, some of you are here because 
parents might have brought you, and some of those people might be that side already. Um, some of you might be here because your spouse brought you. Your spouse has been begging you to come to church and you've relented. Some of you are here because friends have begged you for weeks and now you've come. But we can only ride the coattails of other people's faith for so long. And you cannot ride those coattails to glory. When you come to Jesus, ultimately you have to decide what you believe about him. The other day, one of the children church leaders asked the class if they believe in Jesus. And my son, Sebastian, was the only one to answer with an enthusiastic yes. It was a proud moment for mom and dad because he is gospel resistant. He is a heathen. They are not born Christians. Oh, I'm sorry to say, if you thought they were, they are born sinners. And no matter how much we try and tell him, Jesus loves you, let's pray, let's read the Bible, he often resists. So we were shocked when he put his hand up and said, I believe, I believe. We rejoice. It was unusual. We celebrated that moment. Livy comes into the room the other day carrying her picture Bible. She's four years old, Sebastian's six. She comes into the room carrying her picture Bible and she says to me while I'm reading my Bible, Daddy, I'm going to go read my Bible. These are big wins, big moments. They're important. But the only reason Seb says he believes in Jesus is because I believe in Jesus. And the only reason Libby wants to read her Bible is because I read my Bible. And I'm not underplaying them. Those are important. I need to set the example as the parent, and I need to lead them in the right way. And we're doing that. And so we celebrate that she wants to read her Bible. We celebrate that Seb says he believes in Jesus. But I also don't overplay it, because there will come a day, and it's going to come soon, Seb and Livy must decide for themselves what they believe about Jesus. And when that day comes, it won't matter what mom says, it won't matter what dad says, it will matter what they say. You cannot ride other people's coattails to glory. Faith must be personal. It's about to become personal for the disciples. Because Peter answers, in my second point, he answers with a very clear answer, which is very unusual for them. They're often confused and saying silly things. But here, unlike the responses of the people which are vague and varied, Peter answers with emphatic conviction and clarity. He says, you are the Christ. And I hope a question rises in your mind when he says that. My question is, how did he get such clarity? He didn't have it before. You don't have to go back very far to see when the disciples are confused about Jesus and who he is. It's a few verses earlier. But suddenly, they're not confused. And Peter's a spokesperson. It's not just Peter that sees clearly now. He is speaking for all the disciples. Something has happened, and the disciples see clearly who Jesus is, and they say to him, you are the Christ. That has not happened to this degree of clarity and with this degree of conviction so far. What happened in between? It's very important to go back and look at it. In between the confusion on the boat and the clarity that we read now is a small little story that's four verses long of a blind man who gradually receives his sight. And it's there on purpose. 
Mark has placed it there to help us understand this next moment. Matthew shares with further insight, and I'm going to put this on the screen, you don't have to turn there, how they came to see Jesus clearly. It's not because he did miracles. Some of you might be going, oh, it's because the miracle of the 4,000, they, they woke up. They didn't wake up because of that. Oh, it's the miracle of the blind man, they, they woke No, it's not. It comes straight after that, but that's not actually the reason. It's not because of a miracle. It's not because of teaching. Something's happened, and Matthew shows us what it is. This is what Matthew writes in six, Matthew 16, verse 15 to 17. He said to them, the exact same account with a bit more information, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. How did Peter gain clarity on Jesus? Miracles? No. Teaching? No. When Peter could finally see who Jesus was, it was not because he healed Peter's mom, which he had already done. It wasn't because he uh, walked on the water or fed the 5,000 or even healed the blind man. When Peter finally saw Jesus or who he was, the reason why he could do it was because God had revealed it to Peter. And that is how every single person comes to Christ. Every single one of you that has faith in Jesus today, you have that because there was a day where God came by His grace and opened up your eyes so that you could see. It's exactly what happens with the blind man. A gradual healing to a point of seeing clearly. The disciples have seen Jesus in some degree of truth. There's, t there's moments where they say something which is accurate about Him. But finally, they arrive at a place of clarity because of what God had done. I'm going to put a date up on the screen. It probably means nothing to you, but it means everything to me. It's the 8th of August, 1995. If that means something to you, please come and tell me at the end because we've got a wonderful coincidence going on. This is the most important day in my life. And I could have picked a lot of other days to be the most important day of my life. My birthday was quite important. That's the day God breathes, uh, well, he probably breathed life at conception. But anyway, I'm, I'm born and I have life because God has given me life. My wedding day was important, very important. Remember that every year? Sorry? 19th of December, 2009. My son's birthday, my daughter's birthday. These are all incredibly important dates to me. And I remember them every year. I celebrate them every year. The most important date is the 8th of the 8th, 1995. It trumps them all. Because that was the day I answered this question. Who was Jesus to Mark? And I answered with conviction and clarity. And it changed my life forever. I was 14 years old. Selborne College. Grade 8. God had been chasing me down for some time. That's how it works. He finds you. He chases you. You don't find him. Ever since that day, four years old, God had been bugging me. I had been thinking about what I saw over and over again. And I'd been asking God questions like, what do you want from me? 
And I thought what he wanted from me was to be a good person. So I tried really hard to be a good person. And I could fool most people with that. I fooled my teachers. I fooled my parents. I was the most annoying friend or classmate you could possibly have. I used to have a book, my own little book, blank book, where I recorded all the times you spoke. Anytime. It didn't even have to be a time where the teacher was saying, you know, allowed to speak. I just constantly kept, kept record. Some of you are amazed at this, but I have this personality type. It's amazing. I would keep record of your mistakes, and then I would read through it and notice that my name's not there. I would never write my own name down. And I would feel proud about how good I was. I would think, I am the best of all of you. And I think the teacher agrees with me. And I thought I was the best sibling. And I thought my parents agreed with me. And I was trying really hard to impress everyone, especially God. But somehow, I knew, no matter how good I was, it was never good enough. I can't explain how I knew that. I just knew it. I knew it was never enough. God was never happy with me. He was never satisfied with what I could bring, That as if that was somehow enough. And on the 8th of the 8th, 1995, God cornered me. And someone faithfully preached the gospel, and I'm stressing this because I'm going to challenge you with that at the end, but I got saved because someone spoke. It didn't happen because there was clouds in the sky that lined up and said, believe in God. God used a human being. That's how he works most of the time. He can make all of the other weird stuff happen, and sometimes he does. But what he wants to do, and what he does the most often, is he prods you, and you get courage, and you be obedient, and someone will hear you, or in this case, I heard this person, and when they spoke the gospel, I heard it, and I believed. I could see clearly what God wanted from me. All of a sudden, I didn't understand it before, but now I understood it. He wanted me to let go of my pride. He wanted me to stop trying to do it by myself. He wanted me to turn and trust in what he's already done for me. When I saw that man carrying his cross all those years ago, I realized that he did it for me. I remember feeling completely overwhelmed as I gave up my self-sufficient pride as if I could ever have been good enough. And I turned to Jesus and accepted what he had done for me. I saw Jesus and my need for him, and I went to him, and I've been following him ever since. The 8th of August, 1995, is a watershed moment in my life. It will forever be the defining moment of my life. Not my wedding day, not my kids' birthdays, not even my birthday. The defining moment of my life was the day I bowed the knee to Jesus and said, I can't do this, but you can, and I'm trusting you. Thank you for what you've done for me. I'm living for you now. Who is Jesus to Mark Wood? The most important question any of us will ever answer, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. And I choose to live this one life wholeheartedly in his service. One of my favorite quotes it's from a man called C.T. Studd. I know the quote. I didn't know the man. Uh, Lawrence um, shared a bit of uh, extra detail about him that I never knew about. C.T. Studd was a, a quite a successful cricketer, had a promising cricketing career, and God called him to the mission field. And he gave up on um, cricket, and he served God uh, in, I think, 
Lauren said Congo, I can't remember the other country. China. But this is a quote. It was a quote I learned early on and I wrote it down and it stayed with me. This is what C.T. Studd says. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. And I look at some Christians sometimes, and they're so happy to receive Jesus as a savior and to get a ticket to heaven, but they live their lives on their own terms. They live their lives, they are the decision makers, what they think matters most. You hear them often saying things like, we're going to go and do this, and we're going to go and do that. And when you try and interrogate, you never hear, but God led me this, and God told me to do it. It's always, we think this is the best decision. We want to leave South Africa because South Africa is unsafe. Where's God speaking to you in that? If God's saying, leave South Africa, I've got a plan for you in this other country, you go. I've done that twice, by the way. I'm not against leaving South Africa. Every time I've left this country, I've gone on a clear word that God has spoken to me. Christians living their lives on their own terms. No, God obviously wants us out of here. Look at this place. I don't believe that. I believe God's called the Wood family to be here for now. And I say for now because we might be called to leave to go to Jordan next week and you're going to go, but Pastor Mark said... <laughs> Pastor Mark sounds terrible and this is on audio. Mark said, um, you know, we need to stay and now he's gone. I'm, just, I'm not telling you whether you should stay or go. I'm saying, is God speaking to you? Are you making decisions because of what God is saying to you, or are you making decisions based on your own wisdom and what you think is happening around you? You are going to fall flat if you are in charge and you're relying on your own wisdom. Listen to the wisdom of C.T. Studd, who gave up a lot of what God asked him to do. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. He's not just a savior. He's a king. He's Lord. And that means what he says is the most important. And we live our lives that way. And we expect him to speak to us. And some of it is going to be hard. But there's no sacrifice too great for him after what he's done for us. And as we get to an application of the sermon, I hope you're gaining an appreciation for how expertly... Mark has put this gospel together. I never liked the gospel of Mark, just as a... Out of the gospel, I like the whole Bible. I believe it's all um, God's word breathed for us, so I love all of it. But I think we all have favorite parts. And I've never liked the gospel of Mark much. I've always felt it left out a lot of the, uh, the good stuff that's in the other gospels. It seemed to be like Mark was in a rush. Like he, it's the shortest gospel and it's action-packed and it's not bad if you want to watch a good action movie but I like, I, I want to watch a movie that makes me think. But going through Mark this time, I've gained a new appreciation. This was not just put together and God's done something with it. This is um, 16 chapters with a powerful moment right in the middle where the disciples decide who Jesus is. And it will go in a completely new direction from here, and I can't wait to see what Joe's going to uh, say next week. But the whole of chapter 8 helps us see how they come to this all-important decision. It becomes personal for them here. 
We see Jesus leading them into situations where they need to depend on him. The whole point to the feeding miracles is to see that we need Jesus. He's led you into a desolate place. There is no food around. There's no hope. You need me to come through over here. Get away from self-sufficiency. Get away from doing it in your own strength. When uh, the self-sufficient Pharisees come and say, give us a sign, we'll believe in you if you give us a sign. Jesus won't. He, does, he doesn't dance to the, the beat of your drum. And he's not going to give someone who's not hungry and dependent a sign. No sign's going to work for you. You can do this all on your own strength. You've got a million things you do, little rituals that you keep to make you right before God. So be it. Good luck with that. There's no sign coming for you. When he goes back to the disciples who are confused and tells them, don't be like that. Don't get so dependent on yourself that you don't need me. And we see him heal the blind man slowly. And finally we see him heal the spiritual blindness his disciples have been carrying this whole time. They can finally see. You can almost imagine Jesus' face smiling just there. Now you see me. So what must we do with the text this morning? Well, you must decide what you're going to do with that question. Who do you say Jesus is? doesn't matter what your parents think. It doesn't matter what your spouse thinks, what your friends think. It only matters who you say that he is. There's an interesting story of sons of Sceva trying to do deliverance and going into a house to cast out demons. And when they encounter this demon... They say, uh, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches. Why do they say it that way? Because it's not personal. It belongs to Paul. It doesn't belong to... If you're coming here going, no, I believe in Jesus because Mark says Jesus is real. We had a funeral here the one day, and one guy got up, he wasn't a believer, and he said, Matt says he's, this person's in heaven. So, so I'll believe that because Matt says, it doesn't matter what Matt says. As, by the way, the person is in heaven, but not because Matt said so. The person's in heaven because they surrendered their life to Christ. What are you going to do with Jesus? If you decide that he is God and he died for you, then go to him. Give your life to him. Sacrifice whatever he asks from you. The, the thing that's stopping most people from doing this is pride. You've got to humble yourself and you've got to be willing to go, I can't do this. I can't live the life I know you want me to live. I need your help. It's a very difficult thing for a proud, arrogant human being to do. And it's why so many people live lives apart from God. In Exodus, I'm just reading through Exodus now, and I, the the self-sufficiency of the people is astounding. God has led them through into the desert, done miracle after miracle after miracle, but he hasn't given them the law yet, so he hasn't yet given them things that they can do to follow him. But before he gives them any law, he says to them, if you obey me, if you do everything I tell you to do, I will be your God and you will be my people. And you know what their response is? We will do everything you say. And it sounds right, but it's wrong. Because the right response is, 
we cannot do anything that you say. We are so far away from being able to do anything that you say. We need your help. Is there something you can do to help us? But they say, and it's dripping with self-sufficiency, we will do everything you say. And what does God do next? He gives them ten things to do. Here's ten things. Try that. Let's see how well that goes. And I can tell you, every single person since the Ten Commandments have been given has failed them epically. And if you're not sure if you've been failing the Ten Commandments, have a cup of coffee with me under the tent and I will systematically show you that you have not kept one. So the thought that we can do what you say is ridiculous. And the whole point of the Ten Commandments is to show you you can't do it. To show you that you need me. You need God. And everyone who's believed in God by faith has always come to him like that. Lord, you're going to do something. I don't know how and I don't know when, talking about the Old Testament, but some way, somehow, you are going to do something which helps me, who cannot fulfill anything of what you say, to be with you. And before Jesus even arrives, there's people who are depending on God and not even themselves, and they can see, and they are saved. If you're a believer and have been for some time, I ask you to consider C.T. Studd's words. No sacrifice is too big for me to make for him. Are you living like that? Because that's quite a big statement. And he, he backed it up. No sacrifice is too big for me to make for you because of who you are and what you've done for me. Are you living like that, believer? Or has following him been on your own terms? And I don't want... That can sound like I'm judging you and pointing the finger at you. I realize often I've turned this into me. Oh, this is on my terms now. And I need God to come along again and point something out to me. And he's so gracious to do that. He's not smashing me over the, the, the knuckles. or anything. He is showing me, Mark, you've, you've made yourself the most important thing in the story again. You need to humble yourself here. You need to move to the side. Are you willing to sacrifice to let me lead you? My last thought for this morning is the final text. And you might wonder, why are you putting this final scripture? You can put it up on the screen. Why are you putting that under application? It's a really strange scripture to put under application. It says, and he strictly charged them, tell no one about him. And you're going, done. I can do that. Thank you, Pastor Mark. Why am I saying Pastor Mark? Well, thank you, Mark, for making it so easy. Thank you for making it so easy for us today. I want to ask you this question. You should, when you see that, something should jerk you a little bit and go, that actually doesn't sound right. That's not actually how we're meant to live. Why does Jesus tell them, after they see him clearly, don't tell anyone else who I am? And there is a reason, and it's important, because when you understand the reason, you'll understand why it's so important you don't do this. Because things have changed. Why did Jesus tell them not to speak about him? It was because he had not yet completed his mission. They didn't know what kind of Messiah he was going to be. They knew he was the Messiah. They're saying, you are the Messiah. But they still believe that his Messiahship will be some form of earthly kingdom and bringing Israel to the fore again. And if they go around and tell everyone who he is, then everyone's going to try and make Jesus the king of Israel. 
And it's not what Jesus came to do. In the very next verse, and Joey hopefully won't mind me stealing it for this sermon, but he's going to preach on it next week. In the very next verse, Jesus says, I'm going to go die on a cross now. Now that you see who I am, let me tell you what I need to go and do. First time he mentions it, I'm going to die on a cross. And Peter says, never. Even though you are the Christ, when Jesus reveals the Christ's mission, Peter goes, never. You are not ready, Peter, to tell people about Jesus because you don't yet understand why he came and what he's going to do. But after Jesus dies on a cross and is raised to life, he stands on a mountain with all of his disciples and all of those who follow him, hundreds of people, and he says to them, go into all the earth and preach everything that I've taught you. It changes from don't tell people about me to tell everyone about me. And what's the difference? The mission is finished and you know what it is. And sadly, too many Christians today are obedient to this instruction, which implies that Jesus' mission remains incomplete. That's not true. You know, SBC, that Jesus is God. You know that he died on a cross as, as payment for your sins. You know God raised him to show that the payment for sins was accepted. And now Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. And all of his enemies are under his feet. Sin is under his feet. Addictions is under his feet. Fear is under his feet. Death is under his feet. You don't have to be afraid of anyone when God tells you, go and tell people about me. You don't have to be afraid of the response. You don't have to be afraid of the success or the failure you can take confidence that every enemy is under his feet. Are you willing to sacrifice though? Because it does. Take some sacrifice to be willing to share what God has done for you with other people. And so I remind you of C.T. Studd's words, is any sacrifice too much for him after what he has done for us? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this wonderful moment we see where the disciples finally gain clarity on you. And the truth, Lord, that it was your work. You were the one who revealed it to them. And Lord, I praise you for every single believer sitting here who can see you. Because I know, Lord, that's not because of their intelligence, it's not because of their ability, it is only because of your grace that you have revealed yourself to them. And if there's someone here who has never surrendered their life to Christ, who can see, then we pray that, that you would go to him now. If you can see him clearly and you understand who he is and what he's done, then go to him and surrender your life to him and say to him, I will live my life for you. I will make you my king. I will follow you. I will do what you say. And you might sit, be sitting there scared to do that and wondering, will I be able to do all of those things? Won't I struggle to do those things? 
And the promise is that God will send His Spirit to help you. You don't have to understand everything clearly today. I didn't the first day I went to Jesus, not by a long shot. But God has helped me to understand who He is and what He's done for me. And if you'll go to Him even now, even today, then today can be that watershed moment when your life is completely different afterwards. And if there's believers sitting in the room here and the Spirit's challenging you about something, I want to encourage you to put your pride away and surrender again to Him and say, Lord, I want to live wholeheartedly for you. I, I don't want this to be on my own terms. I need you to help me. I need you to guide me. I need you to lead me so that I will make decisions that keep me in your path, on track with you. And if there's any decision coming into your mind now where you're suddenly aware you made that decision, you didn't consult God and God isn't leading you there, then be brave and surrender. God is gracious to whatever space we find ourselves in today to lead us graciously through that. He'll show you what to do next. And the last thing I want you to pray about is if you've been living like the mission is incomplete and so you don't need to tell anyone about him, then pray for courage and pray that the Spirit would fill you because you do know who Jesus is and you do know what he's done. And he has told you to go and tell us. And Lord, we want to be a church here at SBC of people who live wholeheartedly for you and are obedient to what you say. And particularly, Lord, we're asking for favor as we share our lives with people around us. Lord, that they would see you too. May this building be filled with people who come to know you and surrender their lives to you because you've used us, because you like to use people and you like us to speak about you. And when we speak, faith comes through hearing. Thank you, Lord, that we can trust you to use us in that. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to have a time of worship. So I'm going to ask you to please stand to your feet. And maybe God's going to continue ministering to you as we worship. Maybe there's more things you need to pray through, pray with him about. Let these songs minister to you as we worship now.
Thank you everyone, the service is done. Please enjoy some fellowship outside into someone's coffee.